This is the word of God. So, the uh, pattern Christoph and I have taken in delivering these sermons in the series has not been typical, you might have noticed, uh, for two reasons. Firstly, as we've just heard, the material that we find in Judges is, um, is not typical. In fact, it's often quite bizarre, and some of the most evil episodes in the history of the Israelite people are found in this book. And you might be surprised to know that actually there's worse to come. I think about two weeks' time, there's the worst that I've read in you. Secondly, and more practically, we've been covering big chunks of the story, and it's hard to do a normal sermon when you have so much to look at. Tonight's no different, because again, um, there's all these strange things, and I reckon there's about five, maybe, maybe possibly six different sections to the passage, each of which could get a sermon on its own, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, so what I do instead is, I focus on the bits that we looked at, um, explain anything that needs to be explained and understand, and I'll make a few comments as we go through them. Um, and as I go through it, I think you'll probably notice that it's a little bit pick and mix, and I like to try and bring my sermons together and at least, at least make one big point, and I am going to do that, uh, but I'm not going to do it with the life of Jephthah as such. Instead, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on that very last story that Christoph just read out about Ephraim, because this actually has some bearing on the entire Bible, but I'll explain that in a while. So, anyway, tonight our story begins with the usual pattern that by now, hopefully anyway, Christoph and I have well and truly put into our heads, which is that the Israelites having previously been saved by a judge that God sent, and having followed that judge, they then proceed to forget God and, and what he has done for them, and they turn to following other spiritual entities, other so-called gods, and doing things that they shouldn't do. And again, as they've done every other time, they pay a price for this disloyalty. God gives them into the hands of their neighbors who do not treat them well. In fact, I think it says it crushes them. And again, they cry out for help, and eventually, not straight away, watch that, but eventually, we will look at it in a minute, God in his mercy sends them a leader to overcome their enemies, this guy called Jephthah. Now, there are two things, right, that are different about this episode from all the others that we've looked at so far. Firstly, they're, they're falling away, they're, they're turning away from God, uh, is much more pronounced, you might notice in verse 6 of Judges 10 um, that they don't just follow the Baals and the Ashtoreths, or Ashtoreths, who were the local Canaanite gods that in previous stories in Judges the Israelites started to follow, but they also follow the gods of the countries all around them. And things are so bad that they're even faithless, not just to Yahweh, but to to Baal and Ashtoreth. They go after all, of, all sorts of other people. So desperate have they become that they're willing to throw their lot in with almost every god that they can find. In fact, if, uh, if I had time, I would have made a map. But if you, if you take all the countries that are listed there in that verse, you'll find that they have taken the gods of all of the countries that surround them, bar one. So they're like, they're, you know, they're, they've reached a new low here. Secondly, second thing that's different 
as I said a second ago, God doesn't save them when they first cry out. If you look there in verse 10, um, it appears that they repent, or it looks like they do. We're told that they cry out to the Lord, saying to him, we've sinned against you. But in response, God doesn't show them mercy. Instead, in verse 11, we see that he denies their request. He stays angry at them. It would appear, in fact, that he doesn't believe that they have repented at all. And in the end, he tells them to cry out to the gods that they've chosen over him instead. Next bit then, we're told that they repeated their plea for help and they confessed their sin. But there's a difference. This time, they backed up their pleas with actions by removing the foreign gods from amongst them. And you know, this is probably a compressed time frame. It's not like a little conversation they had with God and all took place in the time it took Christoph to read that. Could have been, who knows how long it was. But this means that they hadn't got rid of them the first time that they made their first plea to him. So it's no wonder that God didn't respond to them favorably the first time. Repentance has got to be sincere. The Israelites were effectively treating Yahweh like one of the other local gods. They weren't getting what they needed from these other gods, so they'd just thrown him into the mix and attempted to play him off the others. You can't do that. And of course, Yahweh sees through their attempts at manipulating him, and he responds accordingly. In the same way, if our repentance is not sincere, God won't save us. People say there are, have you ever heard this phrase, no atheists in foxholes? No. <laughs> okay. Basically, maybe it's an American thing, I don't know. A foxhole is uh, something that you dig for cover and warfare, right? And the idea is that in extreme danger, everybody starts praying, right? So there's no atheists in foxholes. Um, I don't know if that's true for everyone, but I've certainly seen people pray prayers when life is tough that otherwise would never pray prayers. To put it another way, they're only going to God when it was obvious that there was nothing they could do. And when we repent, we're effectively turning from relying on something other than Jesus to relying on Jesus alone. That's what repentance is. Here are some differences between true and false repentance. Firstly, I look at it with this way. There's the reasons and there's the actions. With your reasons for repenting, answer, well, ask yourself this. Are you repenting because you're sorry that you sinned? That out from yourself comes this action or attitude that is hurtful to God and to his creation? Or are you repenting because of the effects of that sin? As in, your sins cause others to look down on you, and you don't like that. Or your sin is stopping you from getting something you want. Or your sins are causing strife in your life. Which, that can all happen. All real things, but they're secondary worries. Real sorrow over sin is over the fact that you did it, and not the effects of it. Again, when you're repenting, are you turning to Jesus because you want him? Or are you turning to Jesus in the hope that you can get something else out of him? That's what the Israelites were doing. They wanted the peace that they knew God would provide. And I've known people who come to church because they know that Christianity has an ability to give them the appearance of normality in their lives or because it will teach them morality to their children. But not because Jesus is Lord and deserves to be worshipped. Now don't get me wrong, right? Wrong 
wrong motives, our motives are always mixed. You know, you'll never have pure motives. Like when I started to, to come back to church years ago, there was a large part of me knew that coming back was a good thing for me to do. And back then I needed help, I did. But it wasn't, at least solely anyway, turning my life around because it was good for me. I was turning my life around primarily because of Jesus, not because of what he could give to me. I was attracted to him and what he said and what he'd done. Secondly, true and false repentance always results in different actions. You see, the first time the Israelites went to God, they didn't get rid of their idols. They hung on to them. So, for example, if one of your idols in your life is financial security, right? Big, fat bank balance, or whatever it looks like. You just want to be financially secure. And you become aware that that's a big issue for you, and you want to repent of it. Now, repentance from that will look different for everyone, but regardless of who you are, it will have some sort of increase in generosity, right? One way to tell if you're repentant or not is if you consistently avoid anything that might make you give away more than you previously did. If it brings you out in a sweat the thought of giving this or that away. Repentance all will always equal some kind of action, whatever the consequences might be for you. This is the key. And indifference to possible negative results of the actions that repentance necessitates is a good sign that you are truly repenting. That was a bit of a mouthful. Will I say it again? Where is it? Repentance will always equal some kind of action, whatever the consequences might be. And indifference to positive, possible negative results of the actions that repentance necessitates is a good sign that you're truly repenting. If you don't care what happens, you just got to do this because this is the right thing to do. And I should add in here that when, you know, when I was talking about motives a while ago, I'm, I'm, I'm always concerned that I don't make people go away reflective on their motives, but then paralyzed by waiting around until their motives are pure. That's the last thing I want. Don't wait around for pure motives before you do something. Do something and your motives will become very clear fairly soon. Anyway, go on. The story then continues. We're just being told that the Ammonites make gather to make war on the Israelites. And the Israelites, we didn't, Christoph didn't read this bit, but the Israelites actually end up going to ask Jephthah to, their, to be their leader. <clears throat> and this guy, Jephthah, his life turns out to have been fairly hard, right? His mother was a prostitute. And later on in his life, I think this is really cruel, his half-brothers hunt him out of the family home in an act of cold greed. Now, they had an idol of financial security. They decide that his presence needs to be removed because if he stayed around, he would be entitled to some inheritance from their father when their father died. And no mention is made of whether his father intervenes at this time, and in the end, Jephthah actually flees to another town. And here he becomes the leader of what the translations in the pew, the one that Christoph just read out of, call a bunch of adventurers. I am going to suggest to you that this term is a bit ambiguous. It sounds like he was the leader of a, a group of peace-loving hippies. That is not what is meant here. He effectively becomes the leader of a gang. So our boy Jephthah 
has a life story that many of us probably have heard before, right? He's from a broken home. Uh, he's got an absent father. He eventually runs away from home because of the pressure he's experiencing from his family, whereupon he turns to a life of crime and self-indulgence. Now, I'm not going to go into the details about what happens next, but suffice to say, Jephthah leads the Israelites to victory, and along the way, he actually shows himself to be a great warrior and a shrewd negotiator. And there are a few things I'd like to point out here, though. Firstly, again, I suppose this is a fairly simple point, but one that should be made. But the idea that only a certain kind of person is going to be used by God is just a straight-up lie. Jephthah was the last person that one would expect to see leading the people of God, and yet at the right time, God used them. Now often, um, I'm sure I've heard this, um, certainly I've heard it from my Christian friends, but preachers will make the point that, well, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God has a plan for you, and with God in your life, you could do amazing things. Have you heard something like that before? That's true. But I think that actually what God does here is something more than using a person who does not, on the surface, look like someone who God would use. I think what we see here is an example of God using someone whose life previous to being used by God was exactly what was needed, but he didn't know it. He was a fighter and a leader, and his life had brought him to a place where he had the skills needed to take the position he was given. It's like with my, my, my previous example um, my own life, when, before I came to church, had all this stuff that was going on, um, and I hated it. But no, I'm glad for a lot of the trouble that, that I had because it caused me to really examine my own identity with a fine-tooth comb. And no, central to the gospel that I'm licensed to preach is that I have a new identity in Christ. And I found that in today's world, identity issues are a big thing for many young people. And as a result, I got an insight into communicating that aspect of the gospel, right? But I wouldn't have had it had God not disciplined me by, by giving me over to the sinful desires that I had. And that's what we see here with Jephthah. His life before he got involved with God was exactly what was needed for afterwards. But here's my bigger point, I suppose. No one would have expected him to become the leader of Israel. Nonetheless, he was prepared, but you wouldn't think he was going to become the leader of Israel. The big point then is not that God will use your life and what's happened in it for his glory. Of course he can. But the big point here is that we shouldn't let the previous trajectory of our life dictate what God might do next. And that applies to every single one of us. Yes, God has given you the life he's given you. And it's exactly the life you need to do what he wants you to do next. But none of us know what he might be going to do. It could be anything. You might look back. Your friends might look back. They might know the kind of person you are. But tomorrow, God might actually be using that previous stuff in a completely different way to what you've led up to this point. That's another thing. I want to look at two more things before we wrap it up. There is this very famous event here. Yes, there is a very famous event here where Jephthah sacrifices his own daughter. 
This might be the most horrendous thing. The thing that comes in a couple of weeks is pretty bad, but this is up there with it. Um, his only child, because of a vow that he makes. And only a, it's only a few, moments, a few moments after you read in verse 29 that he is filled with the Spirit, that he vows to sacrifice the first person he meets when he comes home, that comes out of the door of his home. Now, immediately, the question is raised, what the heck is he doing, right? What's going on? What kind of mad thing is this? This is the kind of thing that people will say, to, who do, outside of the church will say, oh yeah, but what about that story where a man kills his own daughter and it's like, the Bible is rubbish. Why did he do it? And furthermore, why didn't he just go back on his word, you know? When he just say, okay, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, God. I'm not going to kill my daughter. I'm not going to burn her in the fire. Well, actually, this gives us a clue as to some of Jephthah's problems, shall we say. Here's the deal. Some people think that he just spoke rashly and he was too proud to go back on his word. But the truth is, he knew that whoever was going to come out the door of his home was going to be someone that he knew. And he doesn't roll over the vow and instead he keeps it because he made it fully known that the stakes were very high. Could have been his wife, one of his trusted servants. Why? Why did he do that? Well, because that's what pagans did. Remember at the start of the story, they had been thoroughly paganized. They were, they were so rife with idolatry for all these other nations that even when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Jephthah's knowledge of God was still very, very poor. And his actions here are exactly the kind of things that the pagans of the surrounding tribes and nations would do. They would try to gain favor of God by offering something to him. That's the opposite of the God of the Bible that we know, who operates on the principles of grace. We don't have to do anything for him. Whereas paganism is the original lie we saw in the garden where the devil tempts the first man and the woman to thinking that the Lord did not have the best interests of the couple at heart. He says, Do you, did he really say that? He makes them doubt his goodness. Jephthah doesn't doubt God's favor. He completely misunderstands it. Jephthah is a man of the times that he was in. A believer and yet paganized. He believes sacrifices had to be made to satisfy God to the point where he was willingly sacrifice his own daughter. In doing this, he was aping the practices of the surrounding cultures who tr- tried to manipulate their gods by what they did for him. It was hard for them to trust that God cared for them. And in the reality, of course, their gods didn't care for them. But Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not like these false gods. He's completely trustworthy. But even Jephthah, filled with the Holy Spirit, was not immune to these ideas, and he grossly misunderstood the kind of God that our God is. In in the New Testament, there's a bit where Jesus is speaking to some of his disciples about divorce, and he says that God permitted Moses to grant divorces because their hearts were hard. You heard this bit? And a time of judges is clearly a time of hard hearts. The view of God that they had was not nearly as clear as what we have now, this side of the cross. Had they known of Jesus, they would never countenance the sacrifice in a child for God. Why? 
Because in Jesus, God sacrifices himself out of love for us. God's own son is murdered, not for a a selfish attempt to manipulate, but out of an utterly selfless, in fact, the most selfless act in history for us. Jephthah's sacrifices sacrifice of his daughter was pointless whereas Jesus' death on the cross is the center point of history it's not only pointless um, history itself becomes full of meaning and potential because of it this is the God that we know but had Jephthah even had a smidgen of knowing this God he would have acted differently the point for us though is that we well the question is do we like Jephthah let the surrounding culture blind us in some way to God's grace. Even now that we have seen, seen ourselves Christ crucified for our sins, do we have any blind spots? There's a, a thing in Job, a, a verse in Job, chapter 13, verse 23, if you're interested, you can look it up later. And Job asked the Lord to show him his sin. And as you know, at the start of the book of Job, Job is probably, or well, you might know it, but Job is called a righteous man. And he, loves, he lives a good life. But in the last chapter, the Lord calls him out on his pride. Who are you? God says to Job. In other words, God answered Job's prayers to show him his sin. You don't find out till the very end of the book. Brothers and sisters, we, we have a blind spot. But we, do we know it? Do you know it? Are you aware of the effect of the world around us, on us? I, I was watching television, over, a lot of television over, over Christmas, as we do, and uh, I was watching the American... Um, I, was in, I was in the USA. And I was watching American politics. And there's lots of things you could say about it, but just the sheer gracelessness of both sides was overwhelming to me. Are you aware of how much that goes on? And how much it might be affecting your view of grace? Brothers and sisters, will you join me this week in praying Job's prayer? I think it's a frightening prayer, actually. I often pray it and then immediately take it back. I'm scared of what I might have to do in response. But here's the thing that I focus on. And it's true. Jesus is trustworthy. How do I know that? Well, I know it because it's all over the Bible. But particularly from this chapter, how do I know it? How can I tell that God is good in every detail of my life, even the bad stuff? Well, this is where I want to just focus on the last story that Christoph read about these uh, uh, Jephthah and the Ephraimites. And the shibboleth and the sibboleth. It's like H and H up here, right? Shibboleth. So far, in Judges, the Ephraimites, I don't know if you've been keeping an eye on them, but they haven't shone so much, right? Here, however, whatever light they had grows even duller. And we'll not cover it tonight, but in the next few chapters, they are responsible, as I've been saying repeatedly, for one of the worst things in the whole book. Here, though, the Lord does not favor them. Clearly, the Lord does not favor them because he allows Jephthah to murder 42,000 of them. They whinge to Jephthah about a lack of recognition, recognition, something they'd done a few weeks previous as well, and he kills them. 
Why has God let this happen? Now, just bear with me, right? It might seem like I'm going off on a real rabbit trail, but I'm not. Turn with me, uh, if you want. You don't have to, but turn with me to Psalm 78. Yeah, I don't know what page it is. I apologize. It's... Five eighty nine. If you're interested, and then at the end of the psalm, in verse sixty seven, we read this. Well, this psalm is a lament against the people of Israel who have turned their back on the Lord, but especially on the people in Ephraim. And if you look there, verses uh, sixty seven, he says the following. He says, "He rejected the tent of Joseph, but he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim." He, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. You see, uh, I think Peter Jordan was talking about this last year. But maybe you haven't heard this before, but it goes like this. You see, the Ephraimites are a part of the bigger story of the whole Bible. Way, 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 way back at the start, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God promises, Genesis 3.15, he says, to send someone who will crush the devil. This person will be a descendant of Adam and Eve. That's clear. But the question that the Old Testament attempts to answer is, who is this person? Who's going to come and crush the head of the devil? And what we see from Genesis onwards is the answer. Genesis follows the line of one family, and at different points it branches off after some children. Did you ever notice that? But not others. And eventually it focuses on to Abraham. And then his son Isaac, but not Ishmael. Then his son Jacob, but not Esau. And then we're left with 12 sons. Right? So, which one will it be? Who's this Satan crusher going to come from? The eldest Reuben disqualifies himself for his actions. The next eldest Simeon disqualifies himself as well. And Joseph, the big story about Joseph, he seems like he's the best of the bunch. But he's got two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob, their, their, their father, calls, before he dies, he calls them and he blesses them. And he blesses Ephraim with the best blessing. Remember this story? Does that mean anything to you? So it would appear that Ephraim will be the one from whom the seed will come, the person who's going to crush the devil and save the world. But wait, what's this? Jacob also gives one of his own sons, Judah, a special blessing that has some kingly overtones. Now, Judah was a bad boy, very bad boy, but later on we see him changing his character. Could he be the one from whom this devil crusher will come? And sure enough, the next period of history shows that the tribes of Ephraim and Judah raise to the top. There's a bit of tension between the two of them. We're not sure which one it's going to be. And in fact, when the country of Israel splits into two smaller countries, the southern one is called Judah, and the northern bad one is called Israel, or often Ephraim. Eventually, when the northern country, Ephraim, is invaded by the Assyrians and carried off into slavery, we never hear from them again. Judah, however, despite it also being invaded and for a while carried off into slavery, gets to come home and the Israelites, now called the Jews, hope for the day when their throne, the throne of David, will have someone to sit upon it once again. And lo and behold, after about 400 years or so, after they come back to Jerusalem, 
from captivity, a little boy is born in Bethlehem who is a descendant of David. So that's the story. So if we go back just a little bit to where Ephraim looks like a pretender of the throne, but we're not sure. He looks like the man from whom the Genesis 3.15 promise will come from. We also have this promise made to Judah. And a bit of tension is introduced to the story, basically which one is going to be. And that's where tonight's story comes into its own. Because here we see clearly the favor of God. The favor of God has left them. I've just told you the rest of the Bible, how the best of the Bible plays out. But this is where it starts, the tide starts to turn. Here is where the tension between Judah and Ephraim becomes less obvious as Ephraim's star begins to lose its shine. There can only be one chosen one from here on out. And as I said earlier, this becomes very obvious in the next few chapters. But nonetheless, it's here is where the rot has started. You saw, you see, right? This is a long roundabout way to say a point. But even here in this horror where 42,000 people are being murdered, God's plan, and this girl has been murdered, God's plan has been worked out. He knows what he's doing. This is the God who, if you ask him to show us our sin, we can trust that even if things get very, very messy, he knows exactly what he's doing. This is the God who, if he takes us on a different path to what we're used to, he knows what he's doing. This is not the false gods of our times who offer us various pleasures and securities that only last a while. This is the God who has been in control of all of history, and we can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, as our brother Job prayed, show us our sin. This week, show us the ways we're not trusting you, but something or someone else. Show us how our understanding of grace might be affected by the world around us. And give us the grace to repent and the grace to believe. Amen.